All right, we are in week uh, four of our Finding God series. And the whole idea is about, you know, finding God in everyday life because God cannot be seen with human eyes, right? Uh, he is to be experienced in many, many other ways. But before we do, I want to just uh, celebrate that I have been married to this wonderful lady for 30 years. So um, we um, took a 30th anniversary trip this last week. You think we're going to make the 31? Touch and go? All right. Um, she went like this. <laughs> like, well, we'll see how you do. So we plan on taking a, a big trip for our 25th, and it just didn't work. You know, family and kids and schedules and all that stuff just didn't work. So we kind of had our eyes towards our 30th anniversary, most of the kids out of the house, and, you know, maybe freed up a little bit of time. So we actually went to Costa Rica last week, and uh, we had high expectations for this trip, and I would say our actual trip exceeded those expectations. It was fantastic. And one of the things that, you know, kind of blows you away there is the life of the jungle. We live in a desert. There's no life here. You go to the jungle, and it's just incredible. So we did a lot of research, a lot of reading about the Costa Rican jungle, and there are a half a million different species of living things in Costa Rica. There's about a dozen species of big cats, including puma and jaguars, about 150 species of frogs, uh, thankfully some of them non-poisonous, 225 reptiles, including the iguana, turtles, and crocodiles. We saw a ton of those. 200 species of mammals, including my wife's favorite, the sloth. She's trying to get one uh, as a pet, but it's illegal. I keep telling her it's illegal. Uh, monkeys, lots of different species of monkeys. About 1,000 species of birds, including the macaw, they're just filled with macaw, parrots, parakeets. About 300,000 species of insects. Every one of those species were in our room at some point in time, so you kind of got to get used to bugs this big and spiders that actually jump. It's like, I'm freaked, completely freaked out. You got to get used to it. But this lush jungle with tons of life, and that's a stark difference from Southern California. Now, this is science, so write this down, and I'm a pastor, so I do not lie. There are five native species in Southern California. That's it. About half a million, just five. There are lizards, right? We know lizards. There are coyotes in Southern California. There are rattlesnakes, indigenous, uh, toy dogs, indigenous to Southern California, and uh, influencers. They are species native to Southern California. Those are the five. Uh, Jenny was focused on the uh, animals, and she had a kind of a checklist of animals she wanted to see. She wanted to see the macaw, got that, sloths. We saw one just running across. No, they don't run. They just sit there and there's a ball of fur in a tree, but we got one. Uh, White-faced monkeys were everywhere, and then there was the howler monkey. Howler monkeys are supposed to be kind of everywhere, and, and uh, we did, didn't see it. We didn't see a single howler monkey, but we heard them, and they sound absolutely horrifying. This is what we heard pretty much all day, every day. Just give you a little piece of it. This is the howler monkey. That's what you hear in the jungle of Costa Rica. Absolutely terrifying. All right, enough of that. We're scaring the children. We got there, and these things were howling all over the place. And the host says, yes, these are howler monkeys. You're absolutely surrounded by them. And I'm like, well, it sounds like they're going to rip our face off and eat our small intestines, are they? No, they're perfectly gentle. In fact, they're very lazy. And the reason why they're howling is they don't want to move out of their tree. So they're just saying, this is my tree. That's all they're doing. My tree, my tree, all day long because they don't want to move. So that's the howler monkey. We heard them, never saw them which means we have to be back, right? We have to be back. So at some point, we, we will be back. But we still enjoyed the howler monkey, even though we never saw it, right? We still got to experience it, even though we didn't see it. Now, this is sort of what it's like to find God. He cannot be seen. God cannot be seen. In fact, Scripture is very clear. 1 John 
No one has ever seen God. Very simple. But does that mean we can't experience him? Does that mean we can't enjoy him? The answer is no. We can experience God even though we can't see him. We can enjoy God even though we can't see him. And we can continue to find him. We're inviting, invited to continue to find and discover God even though we can't see him with our human eyes. And so we want to keep going back and discover more and discover more. And that's why we, frankly, do church. And that's why part of our life is about discovering God all around us and within us. He is everywhere. We just can't see him. But we can experience him. And we can enjoy him. Over these past several weeks, we've talked about finding God in nature. And then finding God in our minds. And finding God in silence. And then this week, we're going to talk about finding God in family. Finding God in family. And for some of you, that sentence just might be absolutely intuitive. Absolutely, we can find God in family. We want to love each other with the love of God in our family. And you, maybe you've got a pretty good family life and you can get your head around this. We're going to find God in how we love each other and experience God's grace together. Some of you are rolling your eyes. If you knew my family, you know you're not finding God anywhere in our family. Right? You might have grown up in a dysfunctional family and you don't really see the love of God or the grace of God or the care of God and you haven't really felt that growing up. Or maybe your family life now is going through a serious crisis and, and God is nowhere to be found in your mind, in your family. And what I want us to think about is, as we discover God in our family is that our family doesn't have to be a perfect family. It doesn't have to be all put together. We can struggle intensely as a family and still find God there. So we'll talk about that. Whether your family is doing well or whether your family is struggling, we can find God. To put it this way, we are invited to experience God as a family relationship. We'll talk about that first, experiencing God as a family relationship with all of its ups and downs, hopes and fears, simplicity and complexity, fulfillment and disappointments, disconnects and reconnects. All of that is a part of our family relationship with God, and all that is part of our family relationship with each other here on earth and our own home life. And we can find God in it all. We can find God in it all. Because the reality is our relationship with God is essentially defined as a family relationship, right? Fill in the blank. God is our heavenly what? God is our heavenly what? Father. We know that. It just rolls off the tongue. Our relationship with God is a family relationship. He's a father. We're his child. How about this? Jesus is God's only son. Jesus is God's only son. And so even the Godhead is a family now, this might torque us a little bit. There is one God, and our one God exists as family. Our one God is plural, Father, Son, and Spirit. So in a mysterious way that we will never possibly understand, our one God exists as a family relationship. And then God has this incredible truth that is poured out, that we're going to expand our family to also include human beings. Get this. Ephesians 1, 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So here our one God exists as family, Father, Son, Spirit. And then our one God who exists as family wraps us all up in his family. And God says, I'm going to wrap you up and identify and unite you with Jesus Christ himself. So as Jesus is a son of our Father God, we are sons and daughters of the Father God, all united together as family. Isn't that kind of cool? Are we a perfect family? What's the answer? <laughs> no. We're not a perfect family. We are imperfect people, loved by a perfect God, all in this wonderful, beautiful, complex, messy family, the family of God. And so to find God is to understand that God is family. 
and we are wrapped up in his family. So let's walk this journey of a family relationship with God. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we see how God is family and then expands his family. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. First of all, our one God says, let us. Let us create, let us make. Well, one God is a plural us. That's, as we know now, Father, Son, and Spirit. So God himself is family and then says, we are going to make this bigger family of creatures made in my image. We are made in the image of God. The way parents decide to have kids made in their image. And so, you know, we celebrated uh, <coughs> Amos up here, right? And uh, he's in the image of his mom and dad. Uh, we have children, thank God, our four kids do not have my nose. They have their, their mother's beautiful nose. But, you know, there's the image of their mom and their image of me in our four kids. We create children in our image. God did the same thing when he made us. He made us in his image. And then he goes beyond that, and he says... Those who I'm making in my image have, have two privileges that are very, very powerful. One is I'm giving them a free will. I'm giving them a free will. We're gonna make creatures in our image. We're gonna expand this family to inc include human beings. And, and one of the key you know, aspects of being made in God's image is that we do have a free will. As you see in sort of the word picture of Adam and Eve, you have this choice to do good or evil. That's quite a powerful thing. Same thing with our kids. When we have kids, they have their own free will. We can't control everything our kids do. They have their own free will. So God says, as I expand my family and include human beings, they have a free will and they have dominion over everything. They have control and authority over everything. So God says, I'm making this beautiful world. We're gonna expand our family with human beings that have a free will and they're in charge of this earth. As Genesis 1.26 says, they have dominion over this place. In other words, God says, we're expanding this family Sons and daughters, they have a free will and they can do whatever they want to with this place. They can use their free will for good. They can use their free will for evil. It's theirs. That's powerful. Isn't that sort of what it's like to have a family? We have kids and there's a risk to having kids. There's a risk because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the future holds when we give birth to kids with a free will and we give birth to kids that have power and authority to make their own lives and to impact this world. That's a big risk, isn't it? That's the risk that God took by making us in his image. And when we have kids, there are the unknowns. When God expanded his family, there are the unknowns. What will happen when we have kids? We ask that question as parents and I believe God asked that question as creator. Will they be healthy? Will they be happy? Will they get along with us? Will the kids get along with each other? Will they make good decisions? These are all the questions that we have as parents. These are all the questions I believe God had when he expanded his family to include human beings. That's quite an incredible thing to think about. When we talk about God expanding his family to include us, we're talking about a risk. A risk that God took by making us in his image. I do not believe that God has full authoritarian sovereignty over everything. I do not believe God has full authoritarian sovereignty over every decision you or I make. I don't believe God has full authoritarian sovereignty over every circumstance that happens in this world because he took the risk of creating us with a free will. He took the risk of giving us dominion over his world. And so he walks this journey with us. 
Now, I used to believe in my younger days that God had authoritarian sovereignty over everything. And since then, I've softened that quite a bit for two reasons. First is, authoritarian sovereignty, that God is in control of everything, I think discounts the dominion that God gave us in Genesis chapter one. It's very clear. I'm making human beings and they're gonna have a decision to make. That's what Genesis one and two is all about. They've got decisions all over the place. They can choose good, they could choose evil. They could choose love, they could choose hate. They could choose peace, they could choose violence. That's all over the, the creation narratives of Genesis one and two. And so to believe that God is entirely authoritarianly sovereign over everything flies in the face of Genesis one and two. The other problem with that is that authoritarian sovereignty essentially makes God evil. If God is in charge of and causes every good or evil thing in an authoritarian way, that makes him evil because he does evil. Um, we're walking a very difficult road now with uh, four kids who lost their parents in the French Valley plane crash a couple of weeks ago, just utterly heartbreaking. And, and as, as I'm talking to these, these four kids, they have to know God didn't do this. They're eight and 10 years old, and they're asking these questions about God and why and all of this, and to know that God didn't do this is so freeing for these kids who are gonna be wrestling with very complex and, and, and tragic realities for the rest of, of their life. It is so important that we know that God is not out there like a puppet master doing every good and every evil. He gave us, as a parent does, free will, and he gave us dominion. He gave us dominion. So finding God in family, I think is first about understanding that God takes the risk of a parent. God takes the risk of a parent. I don't believe this life is some predetermined script that you know, is all figured out. I think in many ways God is walking this with us as any parent does with their kids. Another side of that is I think that finding God in family is about understanding that God has the heart of a parent. So he didn't just take the risk of a parent by making us in his image, giving us free will and giving us dominion, but God has the heart of a parent. Now, if you have the, the privilege of being a parent, you know that the heart of a parent is a very, very unique thing. It's unlike any other relationship on earth. There is no comparison to the relationship that a parent has with their kids. There is no heart like the heart of a parent for their kids. And that's the heart of God for us. And I cannot tell you how important it is that we understand that God has the heart of a parent. Because I think the vast majority of people on this earth, I don't know the number, but from what I've read, it's something around the 80 to 90% um, you know, number. About 80 to 90% of people believe that God is a judge. They might have been raised in a religious environment that taught them that God is a judge. They might have been raised in an environment that says God wants you to obey the rules. They might have been raised in an environment where this is the law of God, this is what he wants. And if you break the law, there's gonna be consequences. If you break the law, there's gonna be penalties. And somebody has to pay the penalty, right? The whole scenario, the whole paradigm is about breaking the law. Here's the law, you break it, there are consequences, there is condemnation. That is the perception that God is a judge. And I'm not just talking about in the Christian religion, I'm talking about in every religion on earth, that's the predominant paradigm that God is a judge. And if God is a judge, there is no relationship, right? In fact, if you're a judge and you're in relationship with the one that is accused, what do you have to do? You're out. If you have a relationship, you have to recuse yourself because you cannot be in relationship with someone you are judging. It just muddies the water. 
So if we're raised in an environment and we're raised with the thinking that God is a judge, by definition, there's no relationship. It's just, did you obey the rules or did you break the rules? If you break the rules, here's the consequence. Somebody's gotta pay the price. It's gonna be you or somebody else. And salvation oftentimes is sort of cast in terms of, well, who's paying the price for breaking the law? None of that's relationship. It's just judge, judgment. Jesus comes along and says, listen, we gotta change the whole way we look at God. God is not a judge, he's a father. And so Jesus over and over and over again is introducing this idea that God is not a judge, he's a father, he's a parent, he loves us, he's for us. Unlike what a judge could be, a parent has a heart for us. It's about a relationship. Now, we see this most famously in the story of the prodigal son. We detailed this a couple of months ago. I'll just give you the, the, the most brief summary. Here you have this wealthy landowner, has an older son and a younger son. The younger son totally disrespects the father and says, I want half of the estate now. Before you're even dead, I want half of the estate now, and I'm gonna take that money and I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna disregard you, disrespect the family. I care more about your money, dad, than I care about you. Give me the money and I'm out of here. I'm leaving the family and I'm just gonna live it up. I'm gonna party. I'm gonna gamble. I'm gonna drink. I'm gonna buy prostitutes. This is just what I'm gonna do. Totally disrespecting and dishonoring his family. And what does the dad do? I mean, the dad could have said, you're crazy. No, I mean, that's simple. But who is God? God is a God who gives us free will, and God is a God who gives us dominion. So in the prodigal son, it says, quote, the father let his son go. That's what God does with us. He lets us go. If we wanna wreck our lives, if we wanna do some terrible things, he's gonna let us go. If we are gonna destroy ourselves in this world, if that's what we wanna do, he's gonna let us do it. Because he's a father who took the risk of parenting us with a free will and with dominion but God's heart is always for us, and God's heart was for the younger son who took half of the estate and ruined his life. But the heart of God was always for him. Let him go, because that's what parents do, there's a risk. But the heart was always for the kid, always for his son. When the son hit bottom, it says in Luke 15, the son returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The son didn't turn his life around. The son didn't make everything right. The son didn't go through all kinds of confession and repentance and all this stuff to get his world squared away. The father was always for him, always looking for him, and when he saw him coming, embraced him, absolutely embraced him. The heart of God is the heart of a parent. But the son was completely in shame. The son said, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And if you were raised in an environment that perceives God as a judge, this is how you feel. If you were raised in a religious environment that taught you that God was your judge, you feel unworthy to be called a child of God because you're not good enough, because you didn't follow the rules, because you broke the law, because you didn't do what you're supposed to do, because you don't read your Bible enough, because you don't pray enough, because you don't go to church enough, because you don't give enough, all this stuff. You feel the weight of not feeling worthy. That's what the younger son was feeling but God has the heart of a parent and a parent does not look at the failures of their children. A parent looks at the good things and the hopeful things and just being together so the father embraces his wayward son. 
and then just calls for a celebration. Luke 15, 20, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on my son. Get a ring for his finger and sandals on his feet. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began, right? This is the heart of a parent for their child. So finding God in family is understanding that God takes the risk of a parent, but God has the heart of a parent. And then also understand that finding God in family is about understanding we are dearly loved children. This is not just about knowing that God's heart is the heart of a parent, but as a child of God, feeling the embrace of God and reciprocating the embrace in return. Get this image in your mind. So imagine you're the son, the wayward son, the prodigal son, and, and you're coming back home in shame. You blew half of your father's estate. Uh, you dishonored the family name. You're you know, filthy with your poverty and feeding the pigs that you were left with, and you come home in absolute humiliation. The father runs towards you and fully embraces you. How are you gonna respond? If you're feeling guilty and shameful, you're gonna respond like this, right? The father might be embracing you, but you don't feel worthy to embrace him back. You don't feel worthy to feel the warmth of the embrace of the father. And so you're probably gonna be pretty stiff. So to, to find God in family is not to just understand that God is the heart of a parent, but that we have the heart of a child who can be loved by God and feel loved by God and embrace God in return. So as the Father, God embraces us, we can embrace him in return and just enjoy being loved and feel worthy to be loved and feel the, the pleasure of being loved, right? It's a back and forth embrace. So finding God in family is about understanding that we are loved by God. We are loved children of God. And this is what this means. And this just takes a lifetime to try to figure out. Do you realize that God sees the best in us? To really feel the embrace of God and embrace him back is to believe that God sees the best in us. God does not see your failure. God does not see your sin. He doesn't even see it. Jesus died to prove that, right? So Galatians says, why nullify or reverse the cross of Christ who showed us that we are loved by God and forgiven of God, that he would fully sacrifice himself for our benefit? Why nullify the cross by thinking God sees us by our failures? He doesn't see our failures. Listen to Colossians 1.22. He has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That's right here and right now. Believe that right now, as a dearly loved child of God, he looks at you as holy, as blameless, without a single fault. This is my perfect son. This is my perfect daughter. Do you believe that? Believe that God wants the best for us. He doesn't want us to, you know, comply with his rule book. He just wants the best for us. I love the simplicity of Matthew 7, 11. Your heavenly father wants to give you good gifts. It's just sort of this, um, I, I would call it a, uh, a little bit of a lighthearted sentence in, at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is basically saying, don't you realize that any parent on earth would wanna give their kids good things? God is like a parent who just wants to give you good things. Now, because we have free will and we have dominion, a lot of that depends on you know, how we're living our lives and the values and choices that we make, but God is always wanting the best for us, the way any parent always wants the best for their kids. We've got four kids, three of them are out of the house. We have no control over those kids at all. They're not even on our payroll at all. Thank God Almighty. 
At least when we were giving them some money, it's like, okay, there's a little string there. Now there's nothing. They're totally on their own. We have zero control, zero. There's a risk there. But we want the best for them. So we want to stay in touch with them. We want to, okay, how's it going with work? How's it going with relationships and friends and decisions and all this stuff? Even though we have no control, no sovereign control of our kids, our heart is always for them and for their best. We don't want our kids to make good decisions for our benefit. We could care less about our benefit. We want our kids to make a good decision for their benefit, right? That's the heart of God for us. He doesn't want us to just obey the rules so he'll be happy with us. I mean, give me a break. He wants us to be happy and he wants us to thrive in this life. So yeah, he wants us to make right decisions, not for his benefit, but for ours. He wants the best for us. Do you believe that we are the pleasure of God? We are the pleasure of God. If you were raised believing God is your judge, there's no pleasure in there. It's just rules and breaking the rules and consequences. But if we believe God is parent and we are children, that means we are the pleasure of God. Listen to uh, Ephesians 1.5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. God to adopt us into his family, united with Jesus Christ who's the son of God, meaning we are every much a son or daughter of God as Christ himself. That was the pleasure of God to give that to us. We are the pleasure of God. Isn't that cool? Do you believe that God forgives us when we blow it? And I don't mean we blow it and then we confess and then we repent and then we get better and do the right things so that God who is unhappy becomes happy. But do you believe that God just forgives us? Period. He just does it. He just forgives us. No uh, rules about forgiveness. No things we have to do to be forgiven. But just God declares you're forgiven. Just forgive you. And if we can get ourselves to believe that God not only forgives us when we blow it, but forgives us even before we blow it. So to put it in a biblical sense that we are declared holy and blameless in his sight before the foundation of the earth, which means before we were even created, God says, yes, I've given them free will and given them the dominion. They're probably gonna blow it and I'm just gonna forgive them because they're my children. It's just a gift I'm gonna give and I'm gonna prove that through the love expressed through Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing, he just forgives us. God made you alive with Christ because he forgave all of our sin. God just doesn't see our sin and he forgives it all. Listen, we have four kids, we knew they wouldn't be perfect because they were born from parents who aren't perfect, right? When our kid does something wrong, when our kids do something wrong, they don't have to go through a whole system to be forgiven. They were never not forgiven. Our kids are never under condemnation. They can completely royally jack up their lives. They're never under condemnation because they're just forgiven. They're our kids, right? It's not a transaction that has to happen. What if we believe the love of God was like the love of a parent? That's finding God in family. God forgives us when we blow it. Do you believe that God is proud of us when we do well, like proud of us? And, and I know for a lot of us who are focused on sin and failure and that God demands perfection from us, it's hard for us to get our heads around this reality that God can be proud of us when we know that we're not perfect. Listen, your kids aren't perfect and aren't you still proud of them when they do something well? When they get a decent grade? When they perform well in a sport or whatever? We're, we're proud of our kids. Some of you are too proud of our kids. You just brag about your kids a lot. We're like, okay, we've had enough. We, we get it, right? My kid's not as smart as yours. Okay, big deal. You want a button? But I, I've come to, you know, sort of realize that when I hear, you know, parents kid bragging, it's like, well, you're just proud of your kid and that's cool. God's proud of us. 
And God sort of shows us off, I think. And there's this really kind of strange verse in Hebrews, but it's really kind of cool and quaint. It's about how God sees us. Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. Scripture asks of God, why would you even think about mere mortals and why would you care? So just kind of imagine the heavens and the angels and they're all asking this question. God, look at these human beings that you made in your image. Look at the free will that you gave them and what they've done with it. Look at how they destroy each other and hate each other and divide and war and violence and pride and greed and gluttony. Look at it all. It's almost like the whole heavens are saying, God, you you made creatures in your own image. They took that free will and completely put your creation into the trash can. God, why would you still care? And here's God's answer, or the heaven's answer. You crowned them, you crowned human beings with glory and honor, and you gave them authority over all things. So even though we make a mess of things by the free will that God gave us, God still declares they're still crowned with glory and honor, and they still have authority over this earth, And it's almost like there's still a hopefulness that at some point we are gonna use our free will and we're gonna use our authority for good. And that's really the hopeful narrative is that at some point, the more we align ourselves with the heart of Jesus, who is the full expression of God, maybe over time, I'm not gonna say maybe, I believe that over time, we're gonna make better and better decisions. As a species, we are gonna make decisions that are aligned with the heart of Jesus and this place will get better this place will heal because there's still hope that we have glory and honor in us. We have the image of God in us. We have free will and authority in us that God delegated, and at some point, if we follow Jesus more, we're gonna square this place away, and it's gonna become a little bit more like heaven. So know, as a child of God, God sees only the best in you. God wants the best for you. We are the pleasure of God. He forgives us when we blow it. God is proud of us when we do well. And here's the most important, God loves us no matter what. God loves us no matter what. I love the simplicity of 1 John 3, 1, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are. Just about the simplest way you can put together a Greek sentence, 1 John 3, 1, translated into English, just know you're his child, and that's what you are. And let that be your life's journey, discovering the parent of God who's, yes, took a risk giving us free will and giving us authority and giving us dominion, but his heart is the heart of a parent always for us. So feel his embrace, but then embrace him back as a child embraces their parent, their loving parent. And then I'm gonna close with this idea. Finding God in family is about experiencing God's work in our own family. So it's not just about an invisible God out there somewhere. We can actually, over time, increasingly experience the love of God in our own actual family, in our own actual marriage. We can decide that over time, we're gonna love each other a little bit more like God loves us. We're gonna be a little more patient, a little more kind, a little more forgiving in our own marriage. When it comes to our children, we're gonna try to love our kids with the love of God, even though we do it imperfectly, we're gonna try. We're gonna be patient with ourselves as God is patient with us but we're gonna try to love our kids, not for our own benefit, but for their benefit. And we're gonna try to coach them and counsel and forgive and love and and, and, and not to, you know, sort of raise our voice or accuse. We're gonna try over time to love our family the way God loves us. Because theology is great, 
the theology, the thinking that God is a father, the theology, the thinking that we're, his, that we're his daughter or his son, that's great and very important. But how much better is it to also live that out in actual human relationships, in actual flesh and blood, in our actual marriages and in our actual relationship with our kids and with our actual relationship with our parents? We can actually live out the love of God increasingly over time in our own family. How cool is that?